Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Lord Bird. British listeners might know him best as being the co-founder of The Big Issue magazine, which helps to tackle homelessness here in the UK. Lord Bird is also co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on future generations, and is the main sponsor of the Wellbeing of Future Generations bill, which is what we spend most of this episode talking about. So without getting too far ahead and into the weeds of parliamentary politics, here is some background information to help fill you in. In the UK, almost all laws that get passed in the legislature, so parliament, they're introduced by the executive, so that's Downing Street. However, typically every year, some individual politicians will get the chance to submit their own so-called private member bills. And in the House of Lords, 25 ballot bills will be chosen at random that then get priority treatment and just getting to be discussed. Private member bills on the whole, uh, typically they have a very low chance of being passed. So looking at the last decade or so, it's been less than 5% that actually make it into law. But more than anything, I think they just serve to draw attention to social issues that would otherwise not be discussed, especially not in like big political environments like parliament. Over the last few years, Lord Bird has been campaigning to get his future generations bill passed. And this is actually his third attempt to do so. In 2019, it was first interrupted by a general election. In 2020, things were then put on halt because of the pandemic. But then in 2021, Lord's Bird's bill was the first to be drawn uh, in this ballot initiative, which means that now, come 2022, it's finally getting discussed. The bill has already passed the House of Lords, but now faces the much tougher challenge of being discussed in the House of Commons, with the government having already said that it's basically really skeptical. So why discuss this bill then, if by all accounts, it's extremely unlikely to actually pass? Well, for me, there are at least two reasons. Number one is it's just really interesting hearing how Lord Bird thinks about future generations. I think it's pretty safe to say that Lord Bird comes at this topic from a pretty different angle than a lot of EAs will. And it just seems useful to get a sense of where the potential agreements and disagreements are, especially when we're thinking about getting long-termist issues discussed in mainstream politics. Number two is this bill also raises just itself some interesting questions about how EA should think about political institutional design. So there's been some active discussion uh, on the forum and in some other places about whether the specifics of this bill are a good idea or not. And we've linked to some of these in our write-up. But then this should really get us just thinking about what better or other approaches there might be. What do we mean by long-term thinking government? And how would that affect more everyday things like fiscal budgets, infrastructure investment, and education? I think this might be one of those interviews that probably raises more questions than answers, but honestly, I like that. And I think it's much more interesting that way. So a big thank you to Lord Bird for joining us. And without further ado, here's the episode. So one of the first questions I have is, um, I think most listeners or, or people who've kind of like come around uh, the, the work that you've been doing would probably associate you most with the big issue. And uh, I guess uh, this question of, tackling homelessness in the UK, um, a problem that is like really visible and, and present. Um, but now the thing that we will be talking about this episode is your work on the well-being of future generations, which as an issue is in some ways like much more abstract and kind of removed from day-to-day -day life. So as a first question, I'm just like curious how you came to like, I guess, switch over or like um, discover, um, yeah, this like new kind of cause area to, to work on. Well, uh, on the 10th anniversary of the big issue, which was in on 9-11, 2001, an auspicious day, uh, I was asked by the Times, uh, uh, they said to me, 
you know, you've been doing the big issue now for 10 years. So what are you going to do for the next 10 or 20 years? And I said, and it set me off on this path. I said, look, I've spent 10 years fixing clocks. And now I'm going to spend the next 10 or 20 years in preventing the clocks breaking. So that's how I set it, set myself out. I've always been a person who will respond as well as I can to an emergency. But I'm always fully aware of the fact that the emergency is there often because of the poor quality of delivery, social delivery made by governments, by charities, by uh, businesses and all that. And that if I actually wanted to do anything long-lasting, I would have to move from the emergency to uh, prevention. And in fact, I came up with a methodology which was uh, taken up by people in Australia and New Zealand, I think, and, and other places, and it was called PEC. And PEC was P-E-C-C, and PEC was a very simple thing to establish where somebody was working. Were they working in prevention? Were they working in emergency? Were they working in coping, uh, sustaining people, or were they working in cure? And about 80% of the world's social interventionists, whether it's governments or charities or wealthy individuals, nearly 80% of all of that work is carried out um, in emergency and coping. So you can see that there is this kind of overbalance. There's a, a, an emphasis on the problem when it's a problem, very little prevention and very little cure. So that is why, for instance, we have a social security system that keeps people in permanent need, largely because we never give them enough money and we never give them enough support and we never give them enough education and skill enhancement. So therefore, what we have is millions of people in the UK and various other places in the world marking time, treading water. And that kind of permanent emergencyism mm -hmm. is something that I wanted to address. I'm curious on that point. Um, why do you think so few people are interested in anticipating the emergencies on the horizon rather than coping with them once they've arrived? Well, I think I think largely it is the, I think it's very much to do with the kind of people who have intervened in the crisis of other people. And the people who are intervening are normally people who themselves live in comfort or live in a, a, a sustainable uh place so they're they are in a sense they are interveners uh, so they are givers rather than receivers now if you have a an intellectual uh if you have an intellectual tendency as a giver to give and this is governments this is everybody then actually what it means is that you create a ser a series of attitudes you create the kind of intellectual furniture which makes you say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is give that person in need a cry, uh, something at the point where the crisis manifests itself. So what you do is we have built in the world, but really based on the Judeo-Christian principle, 
that we help the starving and we help the poor and we help the weak. So we've got this kind of mindset. The problem is that most of the people who are givers have absolutely no idea what it's like to be a receiver. I'll give you an example. In 1998, uh, when Tony Blair had come into office as a uh, as the new prime minister with a with a landslide, uh, came in and he said at a conference, uh, "We live in an age of giving." And I rang the Guardian and said to them, "Could they give me a page the next day because I wanted to slag off uh, Mr. Blair?" because obviously Mr. Blair was a part of the problem and I thought he was going to be a part of the solution. And I said to him, I said in the article, a kind of open letter, dear Mr. Blair, if you think we live in an age of giving, doesn't that also mean we live in an age of taking? If we live in an age of taking, have you ever thought of what it's like to be a taker? When you take, when people are giving things to you, you you remember how regretful you are with your parents when they give you things, when you think you can do it yourself, when they give you advice, when they give you money, and it doesn't mean the same thing if it's the money that you've earned or or you've managed to squirrel away. So you get that kind of sense as a child growing, you get that kind of sense that is duplicated multi, many, many times all over the world when people turn you into a, and keep you as a kind of refugee. So that, to me, is uh, there is a real intellectual need. I mean, I'm at the moment involved in redesigning thinking because I think that the real problem that we have is we look at almost as receivers, uh, takers, as a, as a different species. We don't actually see them as a part of the of the human race, but a subspecies in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I've definitely heard, I think, this like take in like lots of other like settings as well. So if you look at, for example, like global aid, so you're now uh, instead of just looking at the welfare system within the UK, but also from UK aid to um, like foreign countries and things, it's something we've often heard uh, in that setting discussed as like the funder beneficiary kind of separation where it's like very hard as the funder to know what the beneficiary like actually wants and like what their actual needs are. And that can be the root of like lots of inefficient aid because without taking that perspective or without having um, the beneficiaries like involved in like either communicating or, or saying what they want to do um, with, with the aid, you can, yeah, like get the wrong perception and um, end up doing like really inefficient aid too. Yeah. And also, uh, uh, I mean, I've worked with some groups throughout the world and it's actually when a local group of people who are who have had lived experience mixed in with professionalism, so you get people who have lived in poverty and in need, and if you mix them up, if you get the cocktail, the ingredients right, you can't have too much lived experience and you can't have too much profession. But if you get the kind of thing right, then actually what you do is you get so close to the problems and the needs that you then can transcend all of the problems that come from giving and taking. So you you overcome uh, that. And uh, there's some, in, there, I was um, speaking to somebody about the, you know, what they're doing on Mars. 
you know, when they've got those little robots going around looking at, uh, at what, what is available on Mars, what is going on. And the professor whose lecture I went to, who told us about that, said that when somebody is choosing somebody to, to guide this um, to guide this little um, uh, kind of robot, they have to, the person has to pretend that they are the robot because it has to make up for the enormous gap and the fact that they're not getting a full picture of what is actually there. So this kind of idea that, that NASA or whoever's doing it is you have to, in a sense, take on the feeling of being a robot on Mars. And in a way, I, when I heard that, I thought, wow, if only we could get some government ministers who either had the experience or knew about the experience or could actually simulate the intellectual space of somebody who was down in their uppers. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not therefore saying we should all go out and do, do sleepouts, you know, because I'm very much against sleepouts. But I would love take some people to the very edge and leave them there so that they could do that. And sorry, there's a, a charity that I worked with thir over 30 years ago, which took young people and, and put them, it's called the Simon Community, and put them in with the living everyday life of people who were wretched and had been on the streets. And the experiences they had were, were, were something that, that brought them so close to the problem that they knew how to intervene. Mm -hmm. My guess on, the, on that point is that if I were to just try imagining right now uh, or try placing myself in the shoes of, for instance, a homeless person in the UK or someone living in a very low income country and thinking, what would I most need? I'd almost certainly get that wrong. And the way to get it right is, or basically the only way to get it right is either to just ask someone who is in that position or to myself come close, like you said, to that to that experience. But my guess is there's just a very big gap between what seems most obvious when you just think about it for 10 seconds and what people actually most most need. Actually, that's also interesting because the thing is, exact what I've just said, you've got to turn it on its head and you've actually got to almost throw it out of the window because if you go up to the average person who's living on the streets and has lived on the streets for a while, then what they will need more than anything in their own comprehension and understanding is some palliative, something, some, something with a drug as a drug, some mind-altering, mind-numbing thing, because the life that they live is so treacherous. So, in a way, what I'm saying is you you even if you were to listen to exactly what they asked for, don't give me a Pret-a-Manger sandwich, give me a joint or something like that. Uh, you actually then have to be so near to the, to the problem and you, it, it, that you can actually look beyond what people are asking for. It, it's, it's more their needs, fulfill their needs, not their wants, because their wants are, are you know, I know that if I've had an argument with my wife, I will probably need a drink, but it's probably not the best thing to sort out the domestic issue, if you see what I mean. So moving from um, homelessness to this question of future generations, I'm curious how you see what we just talked about there applying to, to this domain, where if we're thinking about future generations and trying to like empathize or trying to like understand and put ourselves like in that situation, 
future generations could just be living in like a very different world or just facing like very different challenges. When you're thinking about like creating a world that is like um, good and addresses the the needs, as you said, um, for these future generations, like how should we go about, um, yeah, thinking or like putting ourselves um, in, in those shoes? Well, you know, I, I might be giving you a kind of... Uh a bit of a cubist view of things in the sense that it's not all going to flow one into another. But if you look this way, and I can only really talk about my own trajectory, but about 2012, I got really, really cheesed off with the fact that John Anthony Bird was some kind of social hero. He was a really brilliant chap and patted on the back and people stopping me in the streets. And if they saw me on the telly, it, it added to that. And everybody, nearly everybody was saying, John Bird, you're so brilliant because you know how to think outside the box. And I, I, in the middle of the night uh, in 2012, I woke up and I thought, the only reason people are telling me that I'm thinking out the box is because the box isn't working. The box, government, which is parliament, which is government departments, which is local authorities, which is anybody. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to. I'm going to get in the box. Uh, I'm not going to become an MP because nobody would take me. Uh, and I, I don't have that kind of application. I couldn't sit around listening to people telling me every Friday, you know, their, their, their problems. But I, I thought that what I'm going to do is try and become a, what's called a people's peer, which is that you apply and you go through interviews uh, and when you do that, and if you get in, and it's very unlikely that you're going to get in, but I put all my eggs in one basket, and I think there were hundreds and thousands of people who applied for this thing. And I, I actually got accepted in the end of 2015, and then I went into Parliament, and I realised, I thought, ha, I'm here, I'm in Parliament. What are the things that I can do most of all? I was instantly surrounded by many, many peers and even members of parliament who knew me, recognised me, and I was also involved in a film about a year in the life of parliament. So everybody was saying, oh, John Bird's new, new geezer, new kid on the block, and all that. And virtually everyone came up to tell me some kind of emergency problem that they knew about, whether it was the vendors, you know, homeless people sleeping in the underground, whether it was something from their constituency or the area. That, and they wanted to know what I could do. And I had to stop. And I said, look, look, uh, you are, it's very, very interesting. I'm so glad that you are involved in the emergency because someone's got to do it. But I'm here to to get rid of poverty. I'm not here to make the poor a bit more comfortable. I'm not here for any other reason than prevention. So therefore, what I did was I, I had a bill going through which got kicked into the long grass around a credit worthiness and the fact that um, if, you are, if you are a renter, then you have to pay more for your credit than if you're a uh, if you're a, a mortgage holder, and it seemed that Clark, you know, and we got involved with that. And even though the bill was not accepted, it did change certain things in in the way in which somebody with a good rating, because they paid their rent on time, could could uh, influence the, the 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 amount that they had to pay for their credit. So we had some kind of success then, and then I. Um, we were looking around and PEC, the PEC system, 
had been talked about in the Welsh, the Welsh Assembly. And then I heard about the Wellbeing of Future Generations Bill, which had gone through in 2015 and become law. And I became fascinated with that, met with Sophie Hale, uh, uh, who you will know is the commissioner in Wales. And I was, I just thought now, and this is my thinking, this is an aspirational uh, department of government. This is um, a new way of thinking. And because it is a new way of thinking, there will be lots of people saying, prove it, prove it, prove it. And, you know, and expect enormous changes within, you know, five years, 10 years. I thought if there's a government department and there is legislation that is coming on, on the statute books that actually says we now have to think differently, that is an absolutely profound jump in life, even though it may look on occasions because it's slow, that it's going to make any great change in the world. So if I can just say say this, if you and I uh, are not very well and we uh, uh, know, don't know anything reason why we're unwell, and then the next day and the next week and the next month and all that, and we don't do anything about it, the day we decide to go to the doctor is an enormous leap because up till then you were nowhere near, nowhere near the solution. But once you go to the doctor, even if the doctor can do very little or the doctor is incompetent or whatever, you have made a decision that you are going to find a solution. And the problem we have in the world is when I talk to government ministers, when I talk to MPs and, and lords and people involved in the process, when I talk to social activists, most of them will tell you that what they're doing is essential to what needs to be done. Governments will always tell you two things. They work across department, which is rubbish. They just, they have the pattern of working across department. That's one thing. And secondly, they always say, yes, yes, we take, uh, we take prevention and long-term planning into account. It's absolute crap. What they do is they go through the process of making it look like that. I'm sorry to be so rude, but, but you know, so, so in a way, what you've got, until somebody says we've got a problem, until that, and when I saw that legislation and I spoke with Sophie and I got some of the examples of what had worked in, in Wales, very, very minute things, small things, stopping a, a rail, a stopping, you know, taking, instead of spending a billion pounds on on making uh, a, a, a little, making it slightly easier in getting out of Cardiff and all that. I thought to myself, yeah, that that's, that the evidence is, is a bit, you know, is is a long time coming. But when I hear, for instance, that in in Cardiff now, because Cardiff's got this big problem around air pollution because of the nature of the bay and all sorts of stuff like that, the geography. When I hear that uh, that, that that the Ministry of Transport is working with the health thing, now you don't. They're melding together in to solve a problem around air pollution because they know there is a problem for two departments. And actually, that is the beginning of transforming the way 
that the siloization of policy uh, uh, is broken. So to me, the the bill, uh, the, the the act, which is now about six years down, the six or seven years down the line, will begin to uh, change the way that people uh, do, you know, uh, you know, preventative spending and all of those kind of things like that. So, so I'm there. I hope I've answered the question. I'm there largely as as an aspirational person moving from a very very practical world of sort of providing people with a means of getting out of crime, getting out of injustice, and moving on to saying. Now, let's think about the future, but let's not think about the future in the future. Let's think about the future today. I like the point you made about, look, the first challenge is recognizing that there is something here and getting just even getting the language through in some official capacity. We were talking about climate change yesterday, actually, and the story is just the same there, where the first challenge was just getting governments to admit that there's something going on and to... Um, just using the right language, then the next challenge is doing something about it. Um, but you've got to do those things in order. Um, so that makes sense. I'm, I'm curious just to ask about the contents of this well-being of future generations bill. Can you just briefly talk about what is it, what is it calling for? The bill, uh, which I, I don't know if you know, has now passed from the Lords into the Commons. Uh, it, I, I don't know what the procedure is, but it's now in the Commons and it's been taken up by Simon Fell, uh, who is a Red Wall Conservative MP uh, from Barrow in Furness. And we are now trying to find all of the rigmarole, what, what, Friday, what Friday debates, because it's because it's a private member's bill, it has to be on a Friday, uh, What where they can slot it in, whether or not we can convince the government to take the bill or part of the bill or whatever. So, so that is the kind of uh, uh, situation. But I, I'll just read here the headings that, we, um, that, that we're working on, that the bill uh, uh, underlines. The well-being of uh, improving well-being, the well-being goals around social mobility, around health, around global uh, responsibility and about sustainability. And it's about making public bodies progress, uh, find a way of checking in government departments, what are they doing about social mobility? What are they doing about health? What they're doing about social uh, global responsibility and sustainability? That kind of is how do we deal with the well-being issue? Planning and spending. So it's about preventative spending. It's about categorizing uh, spending. So, for instance, uh, I'll just give you an example. £650 million has been um, allocated uh, a campaign that we led, which was about preventing the big issue there, a campaign that was about preventing people slipping into homelessness through evictions because they'd lost their jobs through COVID-19. And we managed to convince the government that uh, they needed to spend 360 million on this problem. And they came up with this money and it and it's being dispersed to the shires all over England, uh, uh, to the local authorities. Now, the, the thing about that is, there's one thing, okay, we're going to give you the money. The second thing is you have to find out how they're going to categorize 
about how they're going to spend that money. What are the categories that they're putting in? Because often money that comes centrally goes back to the areas and then, in a strange sort of way, it may end up in a different area. It's not a technicality that local authorities may take that money and spend it on people who are already homeless because there's a desperate need for, in locally to provide for people. And at, but the money is actually to prevent a new cohort of people for homelessness. And that is often lost on people. So you, the, the money comes in and all that. So what we're saying is by categorizing and by measuring uh, uh, where, where that money's gone, you can find out two things. What is the effect of that money? And, and has the money been allocated into the right category? Also about writing reports. The idea is that you, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the situation we had in October 2019, when the National Risk Register, which looks too ahead, uh, came to the conclusion in October 2019 that we had such a good response to, we had a good preparation for pandemics, that what we were going to do, what they did was they closed down the pandemic committee and they said all the PCR and all that stuff, we were the best prepared in the world. We were the best prepared in the world and at stages it looked as though we were the worst prepared in the world. Now that is largely because you have this kind of strange view, which is you look at the national risk and you look at it two years, you may look at it five years ahead. And what we're saying is you have to look over the next 25 years. So around this, um, yeah, I guess like point around like preventative spending and making sure that there's like money allocated towards this. And then also hoping that by marking this out, you can see the effects. It kind of opens up this question of like, how do you measure the effects of preventative spending? Like, how do you know whether these things are having a positive impact? Be precisely because, as you said, like, often you might not see the results until like 25 years down the line. And also there's this thing with like prevention, right? That like, um, you don't know if it actually did have an effect or if this thing just like wasn't going to happen in the first place. Like, it's a really, really difficult question. And I'm curious, um, yeah, whether you or the bill has like opinions on on how to go about evaluating these things. That That is a really, really, that's probably the most germane question you need to ask. I mean, let's look just for one moment. Let's look at the fact that we have a government which is built on departments. Uh, and though they say they're working across and they're working, you know, they plan for the future, all of that is really not exactly um, the way that we would be doing it if we were doing it correctly, especially as almost detached from government itself is a, is a rather small department called the Treasury. And the Treasury will plan, will pay for airport need in 10, 20, 30 years. They will plan for a rail line, a railway line that will take you from London to Birmingham and save you seven minutes or whatever. They will do all of these long-term things because what they do is they are quite happy to plan for the Channel Tunnel, which took like 12 years to do, and they knew it would be opened by another administration, hopefully uh, another Conservative, you know, or whatever. Um, so, so... So the Treasury is really good at that kind of thinking. But when you turn around and you say, actually, we fail 35% of our children at school, and they become the, the, the prison population almost, people who 
90% of people, and I'm telling you from personal experience, 90% of people who go through the prison system are people who've done very badly at school. If you go to a and E department and you look around and you talk to people, you will find it's people who are low on low wage. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that somebody doesn't rush in with a golf accident or something like that, uh, or you know, fallen off their, you know, their 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 floating harbor, their floating, you know. But the point is, that most people who use the A and E are people who are in poverty, who have, who have done very badly at school. If, if we fail 35% and we don't make an investment in breaking the tyranny of that 35%, then we have the working poor, the underskilled, the, uh, the, 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 the people who are suffering nutritional illnesses of clogging, clogging up the system and all sorts of things and filling up the A&E department. On average, I mean, the, 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 my local hospital, according to a specialist I know, tells me that 50% of the people who go into that hospital and have to be given a bed are people who have nutritional issues. And those nutritional issues are nearly all around race and all around uh, class and all around the fact that they haven't done very well at school. So you've got this kind of thing. So why is it that the government... Uh, that the Treasury doesn't say, oh, God, above, we're spending so much money. 70% of the time spent by, 70% of the time spent by Parliament in both houses is spent on the de- on the problems thrown up, the collateral damage done directly by poverty and the collateral damage that is, so, so you've got all these kind of weird things. So in a way... Um, what, what I'm saying is that our bill would want to address that kind of preventative spending, and we'd want to break the power of the Treasury to be so asinine in its thinking, so dunderhead in its thinking, that it feels that it, it's not the most sensible thing on earth to address that 35% of people. This like point around siloing is like really interesting. And I think I definitely agree that like by just siloing things and not having different things communicate with each other, like you just miss out on like really big and like important things. But one of the things in favor of like siloing or like taking one of these like issues specifically and like really focusing on that is because you can get like more tractable progress that way. So to take like climate change again, for example, there's like one world where every law that we do, we have to consider it's like environmental or it's like impact of like how it um you know, um, affects climate change, but that shouldn't prevent just like having a whole body or like a whole department dedicated towards just like trying to dissect climate change almost like top down and work out what it is that we need to do, right? It's, it's kind of like, you kind of want to have both, right, as well. And then I guess to like then apply this like more broadly to this like question of like future generations or well-being, it's a question around that, where like on the one hand, you can maybe think about making sure that everything that government does um, intersects with that or like is aligned with that. But that shouldn't also prevent you from just like working out what are the structural things that are wrong and like, let's fix those, right? Um, well, I mean, that is that is interesting also because, you know, to me, uh, I've, I've been saying for quite a while, I want to change the, the I want to change the argument around climate change because I want climate change to pass through the prism of the fight against poverty. So in 2008 or 2009, when before um, be, before David Cameron became the prime minister, but was the leader of the Conservative Party, 
we had chats and meetings about when he got in office, he was going to create an enormous amount of green jobs. And they would be green jobs for people like big issue sellers, people who uh, had not done very well at school, uh, break break the uh, upskill people. Uh, and the green jobs would be about, you know, protecting your home from over, uh, you know, wasting energy. It would be about uh, creating uh, forests and all sorts of stuff like that. And it would also be about challenging the way that our education system has has put this kind of difference between us and the natural world. And therefore, you would bring the natural world into the schoolyard so, and so that people could begin to understand. So he was talking about almost a kind of green revolution where it would pass through the prism of poverty. So you would be addressing poverty. And as we know, poverty is not just of the physical material world it's also of the mind the poverty around you know not seeing the importance of education not seeing the fact that you should help your children see that schools are the launching pad for a life that can go almost anywhere all these sorts of things so he was talking with me and i'm sure with others about this kind of where you where you 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 addressed you address poverty through the climate issue or you address the climate issue through poverty. So you were trying to do the same things. And, and that's where my mind is. I want to see uh, uh, education around climate change to be, to be totally uh, transformed. Uh, so there's a bill, uh, I think it's the youngest, uh, I, I think it's a, a young woman whose name eludes me, who is the youngest MP in Parliament, and she's got a bill about, uh, you know, beefing up our commitment to uh, to environmental and, and climate change education. And I want to be, I, I hope that if she, if it gets through to the Lords, that I will be the sponsors for that, because I think that is one of the major changes. We need to up our game on how, um, chaotic this world is becoming if we don't address the climate issue so those are the kind of, when you have siloization you do what you do you multiply the problem now i'll give you an example uh, i was with uh, another mp uh, and she said to me that she had a, a young woman uh, come to see her in the constituency and they went through a, a kind of menu of all the things that were going, had gone wrong in her life she'd been abused as a child she had failed in education. She had gone into a domestic relationship where she was uh, beaten up and all that sort of stuff. Uh, she couldn't get a job. She couldn't be skilled up. Skilled up. She found it very difficult to hold down a job. She had mental health problems and she uh, was homeless. So you had all of these things. Now, if you took that person and stood them in front of the siloized world of of um of government you'd say all right then so which department's going to deal with this i mean for instance just taking the issue what about domestic violence would you go to the police department justice and you say can you sort this out no you wouldn't i'll tell you why because only six percent of women who have suffered domestic violence ever present themselves at the police because they don't trust the police and they often don't trust men 
And even they don't even trust the women who are, who are in the police force because they're trained by a load of men. So you've got this kind of weird thing. You've got this one human being who could be cut up in parts and shipped around. So that's where silentization. No one is ever. I have never met a homeless person whose problem was they didn't have a home. What I have met is somebody who has a a whole cocktail, a whole. Uh, you know, kind of menu of, 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 of reasons why they are homeless, and you have to you have to get into those demons to sort out somebody. No wonder they don't have a home because they have all sorts of other things before them. So that is the kind of reasoning behind why I, I think the bill should be uh, should break through all that silo siloization. That doesn't mean that you don't have you can't act in a very rapid sort of way to a problem that comes up. I want to say I've heard something very similar in the context of um, if you have like a new issue that might be especially important for future generations, there's a good chance it just won't like have a natural departmental home yet, right? And so I've at least heard stories where, you know, the issue arrives on the desk of someone at department A and then it doesn't quite, it's not quite a good fit for them and they're so overloaded anyway, right, that they... They're like, well, well, let's hand, hand this off to Department B. Department B gets the issue, doesn't quite fit, not sure what to do about it. They'll hand it back to A. Nothing gets, nothing gets done in the end. So either you need, like Luca mentioned, some, some department or body that's just like squarely focused on this new issue so they can't avoid doing something about it, or you have some cross-cutting um, standards or bill like the one that we're talking about, right? Um, but, Don't you yeah. actually use that allocation I mean, it is so interesting that you could put this all down to budgeting. Um, one of the things that you need is you need to revolutionise government budgeting because government budgeting. I mean, what happened in the, uh, the, the you know the coalition 2010 coalition was they ran into a problem because what they did was they immediately started they 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 wanted to save three to five percent of government spending by cutting the money that they gave to, to the councils and the local authorities. And what they did was they therefore passed, that translates sometimes to 30 or 40% of closing down social support in, in, in councils in, in particular areas. They were looking to save three, uh, three to 5%. But what, what, what was interesting about it is they never managed to do that. What they managed to do was say one and a half percent. So the cost of austerity then was hidden. And then it kind of became manifest. And that's why in 2020, when you looked at the hospitals, they were already 85% full. And they're almost in full to capacity because of the problems created by this very, very poor budgeting. They'd looked upon it as a budgeting issue, but it became a social issue and then became a dynamic issue when we found that our hospitals were too full of poor people in poor health from poor backgrounds. So we have to revolutionise budgeting. We have to change the way. I mean, I live, I live in, in uh, Cambridge, and I was told that when they cut the police bill, the local authority, that, you know, um, and they cut, cut um, um, they cut uh, what was it, uh, social, you know, um, you know, youth clubs and things like that, social support for young people. They found there was an enormous increase in crime, and there was an, and then they had to put the police bill up. 
So therefore, that kind of thinking where you where you do that is is because they're not doing the they're doing one thing, they're being able to respond to a crime, but they're not being able to respond to preventing the crime from happening in the first instance. And as I and I'm fully aware of the fact, if you want to get a budget for prevention, how do you recognize prevention? I'm I'm a person who was born into absolute poverty, crime, racism, you know, my family are Irish Catholics, treated like a dog, uh, you know, uh, in slums of Notting Hill, homeless at five, six, seven, into an orphanage, into, out of school, running away from school, fighting with teachers, being thrown out, put in prison, put in places for shoplifting, housebreaking, and all sorts of stuff like that. And you get that kind of thing. And you 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 have to you have to find a way of preventing people like me doing it. And because it's so costly, it is so expensive. I mean, I was I was in an institution that cost three times what it would have cost to put me into Eton. So actually the cost of running poverty is enormous, absolutely enormous. I mean, I'm a million dollar man. You know, I've had more education spent on me proportionally than you and probably all of you, all your team put together because I am one of the so, – so actually there's a revolutionary argument around budgets. When you look, oh, let's budget more for supporting families so that they don't fall into poverty. Let's budget more so that we spend, so that we, if we notice a child at school like me who can't read and write, what you've got to do is you've got to support that child because they're going to become a drain on the taxpayer. I mean, as crude as that, in years to come, I fortunately was, was every time I got nicked, I got, learnt, I got taught things uh, and, and new skills that in the end, became transferable schools, which enabled me to talk my way into the middle classes where I am happily ensconced. Yeah. It goes back to the thing you said earlier, where I suppose what you budget for changes if you extend the time horizon that you care about beyond, you know, three or four years to 10, 25, 50, even more years. Then you realize that the things you're spending on now have effects that last much longer than, you know, the next political cycle. And in the long run, you'll be either saving money or saving lives um, just by taking that kind of very long run seriously, right? Well, I'll I, I tell you one of the civilizing things that happened to me, even though I couldn't read and write, was I spent my time trying to hang around when I didn't wasn't in the gangs or when I wasn't shoplifting or housebreaking or whatever. Uh, I, I would go, I would try and reform myself. And one of the things to do was to go to the Fulham Public Library. And I'd go to the Fulham Public Library and I would just sit there and I'd be amongst all these books. And I couldn't quite understand what was going on. But what I was trying to do was kind of situate myself somewhere different. Now, what have they done to the library system? I go back to Fulham Public Library. It's got a, it's got a fraction of the support it had, and it is unable to fulfil all those opportunities of prevention, of getting young people in there saying, "Oh yeah, read a book." You know, if you if you throw Jane Austen at someone and get them to read it, the chances are they're not going to go out robbing old ladies. Is that is that simple and, and all that sorts? And back to the bill. I mean, I want the bill, which is an aspirational bill. 
And it's very different from all of the work I've done before. It's an aspirational bill that I think uh, um, uh, aspires to changing the way. If we can get to the fact that we are not thinking correctly, then we're, we are 90% towards the solution, in my opinion. Could I also add something else? Because I have a yearn, yearning to be practical. I have an absolute yearning to be practical. And I am about to meet with uh, somebody from Cambridge University who uh, runs a a group which looks at the answers to the problems of climate change and things like that. So it's about developing products, developing technological things so that we can learn. So as well as trying to reduce uh, carbon emission, as well as kind of getting the government to take climate seriously this is about let's find the things that you can do whether it's you know sowing rain in the clouds and uh putting iodine in the water so it grows all this verdigris which can uh, that can then suck up 70 to 80 percent of the carbon it's all sorts of things and this this um um this is an incredibly practical way of looking at the climate change and i'm attracted by that i went to cut COP26, in order to get angry with people because we were going down the toilet, so to speak, I went there to find solutions. And what did I meet? I met a, a woman who runs a company that take that takes that creates water out of air. In a you know, as long as it's sixty eight degrees, they can extract the water, and you can you know you can do that. Trees that grow in 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 uh, you know heavy heavy uh, uh, you know in desert things um, a a natural way of of consuming and almost eating nuclear waste and turn it into something harmless. So I went there to do all those sorts of uh, all 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 those sorts of practical things. But what's interesting when I was talking to this professor. I asked her, I said, what can we do, us? And she said, what I think we've got to do is we've got to get into our community and we've got to start building the communities together. We have to start measuring and and and, and actually bringing in the questions of, of, you know, getting rid of your plastic bottles, picking up your rubber, all sorts of things, and actually doing that. And that is so, so interesting because... I have always felt that one of the problems with the green issue is it's a very posh person's issue. I was on on a platform at the Labour Party some twenty years ago when I uh, and George Monbiot spoke, uh, the great George Monbiot. You probably know him, and he's you know what one, and he stood up there and he spoke in his kind of patrician sort of way about you know what we've got to do, and at the end of it. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And I thought, hang on, uh, I know what the problem is. So I stood up and I said, I don't know how George Monbiot relates to the woman on the third floor of a block of council flats over, over, you know, the environmental issues. What are we going to do about that? Where are we going to break this kind of class divide? And it is by doing things locally. And uh, uh, what I did in 2018, I had a conference in North in Northampton where we tried, and this is about the future generations, and it was about bringing together people in the community who never worked together, get 
the housing association working with the estate agent. The estate agent has 125 buy-to-lets that they have to clean and they have to cut the grass and they have to mend the fences. The housing association is looking for more ways for more people to uh, uh, to 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 employ because they seventy percent of the people who live in their houses are out of work. So that you got so no money needs to change hands. It's not about a gift. It's not about charity. Getting the the uh, getting the the local hospital to buy nine thousand loaves a, a, a week from from the local baker who works with people who have suffered uh, domestic violence. And so it's about that. And I think we've got to find a way of bringing back the, the local, the local issue. So, and that is the way, sorry to go on, but that is the way that you can break the class divide. But because if you are cleaning up, if you're making the world better for people to live in and they can see it, then that's how they understand environmentalism, not to throw the McDonald's box out of the window as they drive through the village that I live in. And it's just going back to what you said about being practical, right? You start with realising what matters and then you actually want to end up with doing things in the world and not just um, be satisfied with making the right noises. That sounds totally right to me. I can imagine, for instance, on the future generations um, bill, you can imagine, you know, one way this kind of thing might play out is, okay, now when I'm, you know, submitting my spending report for some department, I've got to like write a paragraph or, you know, check a box that I'm, you know, not harming future generations. And I just kind of say the right words, nothing, nothing much changes. You can also imagine a version where this actually gets stuff done, right? Like this incentivizes people to, to work on projects which actually have the right effects. So you get this example of pandemic preparedness, you know, this risk register came out, um, had this kind of blinkered time horizon, decided that, you know, pandemic risks weren't a big deal. Um, if we had extended, you know, their time horizon to realize that in the long run, this risk really is quite, quite worrying, then you can imagine that just translates into just concrete stuff in the world, like stockpiling masks and imagine the world would be in where we kind of did that properly, probably would have saved like tens of thousands of lives. So, yeah, that kind of really resonates with me. Yeah. But also, if, if you want prepper, if you want prevention, what you do is you make sure that uh, you have highly, you skill people away from poverty so that they therefore are not reduced to having food, which will undermine their health. And they then... Uh, will at some very, very later stage uh, uh, end up in hospital because of nutritional illnesses around the, either the quality or the kind of work they do or because of their intake or because of the amount of, if you exhaust them, are they going to get out there playing football and running around and doing things? And, and actually, a, a brilliant piece of prevention is to make people healthy and to make people healthy you make them educated and you move them away from the problems that, that uh, are presented uh, around, you know, not doing very well at school. So we're coming completely around in the circle. Um, so anyway, so I, I came up with this concept in, in, uh, in, um, in Northampton, which uh, tried, it, it kind of didn't quite work because there's personality issues, but we're going back to it now, and it's called social echoing. And that is, what is your social echo? And if you, we could actually get everybody in the UK or in the world 
realizing what their social echo is and how do they contribute. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's brilliant when you do that. I mean, some of the work that we did led to people, when the COVID hit, they were the first people to go round and look at how the the weak or, or you know the the um, the ill you know the people who who were old how, how they were doing in the community because we'd already kind of built a network uh, and that's the kind of so it's the kind of granular which leads up and then in a sense makes the well-being of future generations something as you say that is not just all abstract and all tick boxing. Uh, you mentioned in the bill that there's this concept called the future generations principle. Uh, and I was just wondering, yeah, like what led to, uh, well, first of all, what it is, and then like what, what led to it being included in the bill or, or what the relevance is? Well, uh, it, it's it's a very, very simple uh, process that, that um, I can't explain it. I mean, it's so simple because what it is, is saying what is... Uh, uh, what is the effect that this particular thing that we're doing now will have in 10, 20, 30, 50 years on generations who sometimes have not even been born? Uh, the best example I can give of what happened in Norway when Norway passed a, a law 20 years ago, and it was a very, very simple law, and what it said was what would development within the city uh what effect would that have on family life? What would it have on children? So therefore, if you've got that kind of perspective, you look at, ah, here's a supermarket, here's a road, uh, here's a, a shopping mall, here's a, a, a community of people living in houses, uh, a third of them are children, here's, here's, here's a hospital and all that stuff. So in a way, it's a, it's a very, very simple thing that what we're saying is uh, not simply uh, what will this do to family life what will how will this affect mothers and children it's how will it what will this do and I, I, I can give you an example I was asked to uh, get involved uh, and I don't want to talk about it because it became almost litigious uh, I was asked to support um, a a, a homeless project that wanted to expand its um, its footprint. You know, it wanted to build more more uh, dormitories and uh, and the local authority had refused them to do this. And the reason for that was because it was in an area of outstanding natural beauty. You know, one of those. So it would have meant car carving off you know a couple of acres of wood and, and putting in a, a service road and stuff like that. And I, I, I went and looked at this and, and they asked me, uh, and what they were saying is, look, John, you know, we've got so many homeless people in our town. We really, really need it. Uh, and then I went to the, spoke to the council and the council said, uh, well, the thing is, we've offered them another place. We've offered them a brownfield site. They can have even a bigger footprint, but it won't work there because it will, dis these woods, that have been here, have been here for thousands of years. Are we leaving for our children something that, are we taking from our children something? And it was, it was alarming how, uh, how the thinking was all about the emergency. So anyway, I, I then 
uh, passed my opinion back to this organization who got really cheesed off and accused me of all sorts of things and putting putting posh things like the environment ahead of homelessness and all that. And and I said, no. And and actually, their argument was they could open the hostel six months earlier than if they'd moved to this new Browns, Brownfield site or a year earlier. Um, and, and and that was that. So so actually, if you if everything goes through this kind of prism of what does this do for future generations, then you really do have to stop and think: Do we build that road there? Ah, oh, do we do we put that sewage work? Do we move that sewage work there? Do we? And and actually, it's such a simple, but but almost focusing thing that we are here not simply for ourselves. We are here for the generations to come. And that is why I think that the bill and the work that Sophie Howe has done in, 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 uh, in Wales are, are beacons for the way that we have to approach the future. Yep. And I would add, and you don't necessarily need to agree with this, but when we think about how many generations are there to come, pretty quickly realise it's not just one or two, but potentially just an incredible number, like an incredibly long time um, before us. So it's a little kind of blinker to think that we're living in the only important time or something. So yeah, one of the, the last questions which we ask everyone is um, what kind of three books or films, articles, whatever, would you recommend to someone listening to this who wants to find out about what you've been talking about? Well, I mean, the first, I mean, I'm sure many of your uh, former people have said, you know, um, Silent Spring, which I read uh, and didn't understand in the 60s when it first came out and have been delving into it uh, recently. Uh, which was an, almost a poetic um, placing of the problem, not simply in the lives of us, but in the lives of the garden and the lives of the, the fields and, all that, and the death of birds and stuff like that. And the fact that, 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 the, that, that the author had this heroic fight with the fertilizer industry and the pharmacologists, you know, she was almost accused of being a communist at a time when, you know, that was not a very good thing. Uh, I think that's one of the the, the, the the greatest things. With regard to films, um, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I'm not really a film buff. Uh, I, I know I, I know I enjoyed, though it sounds mad to enjoy it and, and find it almost a social comedy was Don't Look Up, which uh, I, I was, I was so interested in the characterization of mainly the the, the uh, DiCaprio, yeah. And I just thought I thought this was such a fun film to watch about an incredibly serious thing. I, I have been on occasions done things with Caesar, which is the centre for the study essential risk. You know, you know, it. and uh, and uh, you know, asteroids are up there with existential risks, and it is. Uh, and of course. You know, here we are on the, in the foothills of what could be a very bad war uh, in Europe, uh, Russia and Ukraine. And uh, I mean, it's so interesting. If you'd had a, if you'd had a, a well-being of future generations bill fifty years ago, we might not have got in that soup where the West has spent as much time as as possible antagonising. 
the old enemy, the USSR, and rubbing its nose in it when it collapsed, and then made such a sense of absolute hatred for the West. And add to that, this kind of going around pretending, uh, this is historical stuff, pretending that the Americans and the British and the French won the Second World War, when we know that 90% of all the action, the real action, was done in Russia and done by the Russians. So these kinds of things, if you want to create a kind of paranoia that produces a dictatorship, then we've gone the right way about it. How you would address that through the well-being of future generations, I don't know. But it would come down to education of a very, very high thing. And I would want to say, why, you know, what is the outcome of us doing things in a political, social way? Where is it going to lead us? Because I don't, I don't think the Americans intended to create, uh, you know, modern jihadism when they got out, um, got all the people together to beat the Russians in Afghanistan, who then became Al Qaeda and all those sorts of things. I don't think it was their intention to, but in a sense, they created the preconditions for 9/11. That is what is so frightening about the world, because we are always sowing teeth you know, dragon's teeth for, that, that will ignite 10, 20, 30 years. So it's all about a major new way of thinking. Yeah, well, I would add just on this topic and on the topic of catastrophic risks, not so much on the government side, but on the philanthropic side, um, I'm pretty shocked by how little funding there is for um, nuclear uh, security um, organizations. A lot of the funding has actually has actually moved away in the last couple of years, and so it's in the you know it's less than a hundred million, probably less than twenty million right now, which is quite quite concerning given current events. Um, all right, how about we ask the last question then, which is um, finally, where can people find you and and also what you're working on right now online? I would like people to look at the well-being of future generations bill. I'd also like them to read the articles that I do in particular in the big issue, largely because I range over the arts, I range over the sciences, I range over prevention, I range over poverty and all that. And what I'm trying to do is create a concept, a really new, new way, because I believe very, very strongly that we need to redesign thinking. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, in that area. I was asked a few weeks ago at the Royal College of Art uh, what would I redesign at this design? I spoke to a number of design students, you know, and uh, they asked me what I would redesign. I said thinking, because I think thinking is appalling. I th and one of the problems for me is when you look at all of the, the, the people who are involved in preventing crime or preventing poverty or preventing the destruction of the planet, uh, they are all like bright lights all over the place and they don't converge their energy. They don't come together. They don't know. If you went to a, a Greenpeace, you know, a, a, a Friends of the Earth or somebody else and you said, I've got a million pounds, I'm thinking of giving it to the World Wildlife Fund or something. They say, don't give it to us because there's that competitiveness, which is no different from the competitiveness that happens on Wall Street and the City of London. We do, and 
this dunderheadedness, this stupidity that we think that what we're going to do is we're going to go out and invent another project that doesn't relate to all the other projects. So the energy, the concatenation never takes place. To me, that is, and that's what I write about again and again and again, until we find a way of thinking collectively and acting individually, we, we, are, we are not going anywhere. My, my problem is that I see too much of this. And I see, I think also we, we've, uh, we're anesthetizing our children through uh, technology and gadgetry and we're limiting their ability to take on new ideas. So I think there's a major, major issue about reinventing education. Uh, but and I write about that. Um, I'm not the most well-informed p- person. I'm more of a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a person who goes on hunches. So if something falls on my head, I talk about it. But I'm not a researcher or anything, and I don't really know if there's a lot of other people saying the same things as I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess maybe a last thing to say is there are a lot of people, even more and more now, thinking about what can we do to protect future generations? You mentioned one of them, Centre for the Study of Existential Risk in Cambridge. There's a couple of places in Oxford. But in general, this idea of this kind of long-term thinking, long-termism, I see it really taking off for the next few years. So um, um, it will make sense to, to, for both parties to kind of keep talking to one another there. Yeah. So I was just going to say, don't be frightened of the abstract. Don't be frightened of the... Uh, my advice, don't be frightened of the fact that it, it does sound a kind of waffly or it sounds, you know, imprecise. Because if we can get that, if we can bring that, then we can make it, we can practicalize it if there is such a word. We will find a And that's why I'm doing this uh, social echo stuff, because I want, I want people on the third floor of the block of houses in Hackney to know darn well that the environment is strong and is necessary and it is actually should be on their list of priorities and not just the emergency and the needs of today. Totally. All the great changes, all the great practical improvements we've seen in history started presumably with some kind of hunch, some kind of abstract idea, and then someone did something about them. It's both those things, right? Um, all right. I think that is everything from, from us. So Lord John Bird, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Lord Bird on the Future Generations Bill. As always, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash bird. There you'll find links to all the books and articles mentioned in the interview alongside a full transcript of our conversation. A big thanks also to our producer, Jason Cotrebill, for editing this episode and making us sound good. If you're enjoying this podcast, then the best gift that you can give us is to leave us a review or comment wherever you're listening to this, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. We know that your time is surely valuable, but it's really the best way for us to learn how to keep improving the show and to get the algorithm to recommend us to new listeners. You can also send guest suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Thanks so much for listening.